Well, good morning, everyone. Very good to see you guys. Hopefully you had a Merry Christmas, and uh, hopefully it was a little crazy like, like mine was. I don't know if, if you dads can, uh, uh, if you had the same experience as I did, but as the kids were opening up presents, I was just as surprised as they were, right? <laughs> Looking around like, okay, I guess this is what we're spending on Christmas this year. <laughs> Jeez. The Lord will provide for the year 2022. Um, yeah, we're continuing on in our, in our series in the life of Christ, and so if you have a Bible, you can open it up to Luke chapter 2, the end of Luke chapter 2, uh, verse 41, until the end of the chapter, and, and we're going to be talking about Jesus' childhood, his adolescent years, and as, as many of you probably know, historians have always been interested in understanding the, the childhood and the upbringing of notable characters in history, and the account that we're about to read is from an, an historian named Luke. He was a doctor, but he's also an historian. And uh, this is the only historically reliable account we have of Jesus' childhood. Okay, so just think about that for a second. Don't just, don't just throw it away. The only account, no matter what your view on Jesus is, whether you think he really is God or not, or you think he's just a man... Nobody's arguing that Jesus was, hands down, the most influential person to ever walk the face of the earth. And this is the only account we have of his childhood. And if you're rummaging around in your basement, and you see back in the dark corner, you see this thing that you've never seen before, probably there from the previous owners. It's covered up by a blanket. You pull it out, you rip off the blanket, and you see this gorgeous painting. And you see in the corner of the painting the name sketched out, Rembrandt. What are you going to do at that point? Are you going to shove it right back into storage, or are you going to take it, examine it, and go, oh my, this could be so valuable. Well, this is our story here this morning. Our story is historic gold. And I want us to examine it closely, and I want to examine it with you in order that we might understand Jesus. That's what I want to do, and that's what I want you to do, is to understand Jesus better here this morning. So, Luke chapter 2, verse 41, get your eyes on the text, and let's look at this. Verse 41, Luke says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and this is a seven-day festival. Uh, there's three big festivals every year, and this was the biggest one, probably. And uh, it was seven days long. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. Now, these first two verses, they're not just flyover verses, because they actually tell us a lot about the spiritual life of Mary and Joseph. For instance, Mary, being a woman, and Jesus, being just 12 years old, they were not required to be at this festival. Only men were required to be there, which, which shows there was probably some desire inside Mary to stop what she was doing in Nazareth and to come down to Jerusalem. She wanted to be there. And also, the fact that Jesus was 12, he was not yet considered a man. He didn't need to be there, which shows that Mary and Joseph, they wanted their son to be there with them, so they took him along. And also, if you look at the beginning of verse 43, the first couple words say, and when the feast had ended... Now, this is a seven-day-long feast, 
Okay, so that means they stayed every single one of the days when the cultural norm of that time was just, if you, if you didn't live in Jerusalem, just pick a day, come down there, get out of there, get back to the family farm. So, so here we have Mary and Joseph. They want to be there. They want their kids to be there. And they stay even longer than the culture tells them to. And I say all that just to point out that they are devout followers of God. Verse 43, and when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, and his parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Can you imagine that, parents? You lose your kid? This is like the, the ancient prequel to Home Alone, right? Where did Jesus go? Uh, I personally, I actually can relate to Jesus here. Um, when I was a boy, uh, my parents took us to a Hardee's restaurant, a, a fast food place, and there used to be the ball pits there. And my parents, after we leave, pull into the driveway. My dad gets out, opens the van door, and he sees the empty car seat of little Johnny. He left me in the ball pit. And he looks at my brother and he goes, where's your brother? And my brother goes, well, I don't know. I have no idea. I just, that's kind of what I'm picturing Mary come up to Joseph with. Joseph, where is Jesus? I don't know. I don't know. Um, no, no. In reality, what was going on here, the reason why they left Jesus there is because they used to travel in big groups. Uh, the men would travel behind the women and then the women and the kids would travel in front of them. And uh, Jesus was at the age where he could have chosen to be in either the kids or the men's. And so, obviously, Mary and Joseph assumed that they were in each other's group. And then when they got together later that evening, they found out there was no Jesus. So then they went back to Jerusalem. And uh, verse 46, after three days... I mean, you guys got kids. I got, I got boys. I, that, that, that would make me a little nervous, right? Three days without finding your kids? They found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Now, the teachers that would have been there at that point would have been the best of the best in all of Israel. They all would have made their way down to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Passovers. So, the, the, the wisest and smartest teachers in the entire nation are there. And verse 47 says, And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. That's an understatement, I'm sure. And he said... To them, now note this. This is the first recorded words of Jesus in the Bible. And he said, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now, like I said, this is a rare 
story. Rare. Only one we have of Jesus. But before we really dig into the life of Jesus, I want to point something out about Mary and Joseph, and specifically Mary. Um, Because Luke's a historian, and right before this story, in chapter 1 of Luke's gospel, he flat out tells us, these aren't my stories that I saw. I interviewed people, and I wrote them down. So these are eyewitness accounts that Luke is recording. And many scholars, and I believe, and I tend to believe these scholars, believe that Mary was the eyewitness account that Luke was asking here. So think about that. That's, that puts some color to this story now. This is, from, this is possibly from the eyes of the mother that lost her child, right? Just picture it. As Luke is sitting down to interview Mary, Mary sits back and starts to remember all of the stories of her son. And shockingly, she says something that was not exactly flattering about herself. All of the memories that she could have thought of, all of these things that, as verse 51 says, she was treasuring up in her heart, she says something that was not very flattering. Did you catch it? Mary reveals how little she understood Jesus. Seven different references in our story point to Mary and Joseph's lack of seeing or lack of understanding who Jesus was. And it all accumulates into verse 50, where it says, and they did not understand the saying that was spoke to him, spoken to him. But, but of course, it's Christmas time, right? We, we just got done hearing all of the Jesus Christmas stories. And so we would look back and go, now, wait a minute, wait a minute. It seems to me that Mary clearly did understand a lot of things about Jesus. I mean, in Luke's gospel alone, let me just point out some of them. What about Gabriel? Gabriel told Mary that Jesus will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. That's pretty clear. What about the shepherds? They told Mary and Joseph that Jesus would be Christ the Savior. What about Simeon? You remember Simeon? Holding Jesus up in the temple, parents are probably going, what in the world are you doing grabbing my kid? This dude takes Jesus, holds him up, and says, he is God's salvation to the Jews and the Gentiles. And Anna, right after him, told Mary and Joseph that Jesus was the redemption of Jerusalem. So so what was it? Did Mary understand Jesus, or didn't she understand Jesus? I think the answer is yes. Because her understanding of Jesus was blurred. Growing up, I did not have the best eyesight. I would always squint at things. Uh, and uh, my parents didn't get me contacts until I was 16, so I don't know what was up with them. But <laughs> always squinting at everything. And, uh, and people would ask me, why are you squinting? Because I, I can't see. I can't see what's in front of me. Now, the reality of it was I could see, right? I could see, but my eyesight, it was blurry. Mary could see, Mary could understand Jesus, but her understanding of Jesus was not clear. It was, it was blurred. And if you're a Christian here, can't you relate to her? Can you relate to Mary? I mean, in the moment, Jesus is just a boy. It, where we're sitting at now, we're on this side of the cross. We, we know who Jesus is. 
We know what Jesus came to do. We know that he died on the cross. He he rose from the dead and he ascended back up into heaven. We know all of these things, yet at least for me personally, and I would guess for, for many, if not all of you, I still have a pathetically blurry view of the glory of Jesus in my heart and in my eyes. I don't see him like I ought to see him. I don't cherish him like I ought to cherish him. We watched that video just the other day in their Christmas Eve service about Jesus the King, and it, and it moves you, right? I don't always feel that towards my, my Savior. I was just talking to somebody, and we were confiding in each other that we're not really big fans of, of singing the Christmas songs during Christmas because we've all heard them before, right? It's just like, ah, yeah, just something that doesn't move me. But what is that? What is that other than my heart being unmoved, not by the song, but by the incarnation of Jesus? I don't see him like I ought to. We understand the gospel as Christians, but we don't understand it clear enough for it to impact our entire being and, to, and for it to get us to move and, and look and imitate the life of Christ Like Mary, I think our understanding is blurred. Our understanding of our Savior is blurred, and we don't see him like we ought to. So now, as we turn now to examine Jesus, I want to look at him. But while I do that, let me just throw out two challenges to you. Uh, For this message and for the rest of this series as well, because this isn't the only message about Jesus that we're going to be preaching around here. It's called the life of Christ, and we're going to be in here until after Easter, okay? So you're going to get a lot of Jesus, okay? And so here's two challenges. And one of the challenges is for those of you whose eyes, they're not blurry, you're blind, right? You can't see Jesus. You don't understand him. Um, You don't buy into who he says he is because you're dead in your sins. Maybe someone's brought you here today, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your parents, whatever, being the holiday seasons, and you just don't believe Jesus is who we claim him to believe. Well, here's my challenge to you. Don't check out, but rather, like the boy Jesus, sincerely sit and just listen. Just listen. And ask yourself the question, sincerely, with, your, with a very sincere heart, is this Jesus who we claim him to be? Today, as I'm talking, and anytime you might come back, ask yourself that question. Is this Jesus really who we claim him to be? And the second challenge is for those of you who can see, but your eyes are just a little blurry. And that's a simple challenge, and it's just to pray. Pray, even right now as I'm speaking, in your own hearts, pray that God would adjust your eyes to being able to see Jesus clearly. Because let's be honest, anytime we see Jesus clearly, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. I'm so selfish. I am so self-centered, addicted to my own idolatry. I wake up every single morning worshiping myself. And it is a miracle when I can see Jesus. So plead right now and for the rest of these messages, plead that God would, as the psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 18, open your eyes so that you might see wonderful things. That's what I want to do. And so for the remainder of our time, let's Let me at least attempt and try to help us understand Jesus by 
pointing out four characteristics of Jesus to imitate from our story. And if you're into New Year's resolutions, throw these in there. These will be four good ones for you. And the first one is that Jesus was a student. He was a student. Um, I got this family picture here that the Nemers family used to always take Christmas pictures, and uh, they're, they're pretty epic. Um, but if you look at it, there's supposed to be 12 of us, and there's only 11. Uh, so, so one of them's missing. This is a pretty famous story in our, in our home, and it's probably embellished a little bit. But uh, we, we took the picture, and we're looking at it days later, and we realize our brother's missing. He's not in the picture. And we come to find out that he got some new gum for Christmas. And so what he did, instead of stay down when it was family picture time, he went upstairs and focused on chewing his gum. And so he missed family pictures right here. He was so focused on chewing his gum that he missed it. Well, a little bit more honorable than gum, Jesus in our story, just picture this, just, just, just think about this. Jesus was so focused. He had such a desire to focus on his growth and his understanding and his intimacy with God that he literally didn't even notice that his parents left. That he didn't even notice that they left him behind. But the really interesting thing about this is this wasn't just Jesus being a 12-year-old boy, or it wasn't just Jesus being really interested and being a really diligent student at one point in his life. His entire ministry is marked out by this characteristic. You read through the Gospels, and throughout his entire ministry, we see Jesus being a student and diligently rising up before the sun rose to sit and hear from the Father. You hear it all the time in the gospel. And I do wonder if Jesus, when he was, when he was uh, um, 18 years later, when he was with his friends um, one time, I wonder if he had a flashback to him being 12, year old, 12 years old in the temple when he was with his friend Martha, who was complaining about, his, about her sister Mary, who was doing what? Sitting at the feet of Jesus and learning. She's going, Jesus, what in the world's going on here? I'm up here doing everything. Mary is just doing what? She's just sitting and learning. But what does Jesus say? In Luke 10, Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary, and Mary has chosen the good portion. See, Jesus understood as a boy and would go on to teach later on as a man that while life is chaotic, the most urgent thing you can do is slow down and sit at the feet of God every single day. And this could never be more practical than in our culture today, could it? We're always so busy. This whole culture is all about getting things done quickly. And if it's not the chaos of life, it's the constant distractions and noise from our phones and our TVs. Well, listen, you were not created for chaos. You were made for meditation. You think about that. You were made to meditate on the things of God. You were made. God created you to be in awe of him. He created you to think deeply about the things of God and to be absolutely awestruck at who he is. 
Psalm 4.4 says, ponder in your own hearts and in your own beds and be silent. So here's a question for you. In the middle of all the chaos, or all of our lives are chaotic. We've got four kids. They're chaotic. Believe me. Will you be resolved in 2022 to sit and be a student at the feet of God's word? Isaiah 66, 4 says, or 66, 2 rather, says, This is the one whom I look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. If Jesus needed to do that, I think we need to do that as well. Be a student of God's word this year. Second characteristic of Jesus is that Jesus was a lover of God and people. Verse 52 says, Jesus increased in favor with God and man. Now later on in Jesus' life, he would go on to sum up all of the commandments in the entire Bible by saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So catch this, according to Jesus, if you're growing in your love for God, which is a claim that a lot of Christians make, most Christians make, I love God, I'm growing. I may even actually enjoy and love being in his word. But Jesus says, if you're growing in your love for God, you will grow in your love for people. You will. So ask yourself the question, are you growing? I had a conversation one time with a Christian who said in a little bit of a snarky voice, I don't really like people. (laughs) I just kind of sitting there looking at him like, Look, the, the culture may tell you that's okay. You know, you be you. But that's not what Jesus would tell you. No matter your personality, if you want to imitate Jesus, that means loving people. It means loving people. Because why? Because you're, you're a person that's so good at loving? Or you're a lovable person? No, it's because he first loved you. And because he loved you, that should impact you in such a way that it bleeds out to those around you. And so here's a radical thought. Why don't we actually start loving the ones that Jesus just flat out tells us to love right here? And start with our own neighbors, like your literal neighbors, the ones who actually live right next door to you. You know, we can theorize that word neighbor. Like, what about the ones who actually live right next to you? Because I think, I really believe this, if you were to love your neighbors, you could actually reach your entire community with the gospel. And isn't that what you want as a Christian? Don't you want to reach the community around you with the gospel? I mean, just think about it. If you love your neighbors, you may reach your neighbors. And if you reach your neighbors, you may reach your street. And if you reach and make disciples who are also loving their neighbors in that same way, then by God's grace, you could reach your entire community. I think Jesus was on to something there, right? Love God, love people. Third characteristic of Jesus was that Jesus was committed to his mission. Verse 49 says, Jesus says, I must be in my Father's house. Underline that word. I must be in my Father's house. You know, he's he's at the feast of the Passover, and so no doubt 
that he would have been listening to lectures over the Passover from these teachers. So a teacher would have gotten up, would have started lecturing over Israel and their captivity in Egypt and how the plagues ended up coming when Moses came around and, and he would have eventually gone through all of the plagues and gotten to the last plague and, and described how in order for Israel to save their lives from the angel of death, a perfect, spotless lamb needed to be slaughtered. And here Jesus, and I wonder if it was at this moment, but we, we're not told, but here Jesus, increasing in wisdom, knew that he was the lamb that would come to be slaughtered on a cross for the salvation of the world. Think about that. As a 12-year-old boy, Jesus knew this entire festival is about what I'm coming to do. I'm the Passover lamb. And even though he knew that at the age of 12, he knew what kind of horrible death he would go on to suffer through, he still said as a boy, I must be about my father's business. His mission was not an option to him. He was going to the cross, and he knew it. And aren't you glad that he went to the cross? Even though he saw it, he ran right to it. But what about you? This next year could be one of the hardest years you've ever gone through. Everyone goes through suffering, but it could be a really difficult year for some of you. And what are you going to do when that suffering comes? If you're a Christian, are you just going to complain? Are you going to give in to sin? It's too hard, can't handle it. Going to get a divorce? Don't want to work it out? Take the easy way out? Or, even last week we heard, maybe it'll just make you become apathetic. And just we'll stop caring about spiritual things. Well, I got a better idea. Be like Jesus. Jesus committed himself to the mission of following God's will for his life. Will you commit yourself to the mission of following God's will for your life? And it's not easy. It never is. Life is not black and white. It's so crazy. And it's so oftentimes the hardest thing to do is follow God's will for your life. But the Father did give Jesus strength. He did. And you can be sure that he will give you strength as well. Jesus was a lover of God and of people, and he was committed to his mission. And then lastly, Jesus was humble. Verse 48 and 49, Jesus purposely turns Mary's statement around Mary says, your father and I have been searching for you. But Jesus responds, I must be in my father's house. And he wasn't talking about Joseph right there. This was the first self-proclamation from Jesus that he is the son of God at 12 years old. That's amazing. Now think about this. At 12 years old, Jesus amazed the smartest teachers in all of Israel. At 12. At 12 years old, Jesus understood that the festival he was attending 
thousands and thousands of people all gathered together was actually a festival celebrating what he actually was coming to do. The festival was about him. And at 12 years old, Jesus understood that he was God in flesh. And he knew that by calling God his own father. Now, if there was any person who was susceptible to pride in that moment, it would have been Jesus. But what did he do? Look at verse 51. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. (laughs) That's amazing. The holy God who created all things and in whom all things hold together, this God submitting to his sinful parents. What an example of humility. And if we can't learn something about Jesus here, there's something wrong with us. And Paul talks about Jesus' humility in Philippians 2. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility. Consider one another as more important than yourself. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So, how can you be more like Jesus? Well, ask yourself the question, do I consider others more important than myself? Because that's what Jesus did. Husbands, Do you consider your wives more important than you? Wives, do you consider your husbands more important than you? Parents, do you consider your children more important than you? Bosses, do you consider your employees more important than you? Jesus would have had that question going on in his head for every individual he saw. Could you imagine that? Every individual you see, you ask yourself the question, how can I consider them more important than myself? There's a New Year's resolution for you. Jesus was humble. He was the greatest example of humility that we ever saw. The the eternal God not grasping on tightly to all of the glories that he had every right to grasp onto, but since before the foundations of the world, he had the mindset where he said, no, I'm not going to do that, so that I can and will enter into my own creation. Something that C.S. Lewis called the true myth, a mythical story that actually happened at one point in time. So that I might suffer as a servant and then die. And 21 years later, after Jesus was in the temple as a boy, 21 years after this, Jesus would be back in the exact same city during the exact same festival, the Passover, the Feast of the Passovers. And we're not told, but it's not a far stretch to think that the, the, some of the same teachers that were amazed about his wisdom in the temple as a boy, were standing in front of him 21 years later as a man, and this time they would ask him a different question. Luke 22, 70. And they all said, that is the chief priest and the scribes, are you the son of God then? 
And Jesus would give them the exact same answer he gave Mary and Joseph when he was 12. And he said, you say that I am. Or in other words, you are correct in saying that God is my father. And that's all they needed to hear. After that, they took him to Pilate and they crucified him. The same words that he proclaimed as a boy would kill him as a man. But this boy's future death is what makes the gospel the good news, isn't it? That God eternal would come as a baby, grow as a boy, suffer as a servant, die as a sacrifice so that he would rise as a savior. This is the God that loves you. And the one question that I want you to ask yourself is, do you understand him? Because there's some of you in here, you, you've never, you're still blind. You need that first miracle to take place where you can see him. If that's you, would you, would you at least consider Jesus? Consider that God is perfect and holy and you are not. And the only way for you to access this holy God is if Jesus died. Would you look at that and consider that as your one way to true satisfaction, your one way to have your sins forgiven. Do you understand him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we admit we do not understand you like we ought to. Um, and that won't happen completely on this side of eternity. Lord, we are progressing from one degree of glory to the next and uh, we thank you for that process, that sanctification that you're doing in us, Lord. But we do ask and plead that you would open our eyes to see Jesus clearly. And I pray that if there is a single soul in here this morning that does not know you, they're blind, Lord, I pray that you would do what you do. Do a miracle and open their eyes so that they might see, worship, adore, trust, and follow you, Father. And we love you. In your son's name, amen.